0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. With that, let's go to uh, the Persecuted Church, part two, and we'll look at God's word together. As we're going through the book of Acts, just by way of reminder, in chapter eight, we talked about how it's a transitional chapter in the book of Acts, but also a transitional chapter in terms of church history, in terms of the significant events that have happened up to this point. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 8 in the church of Jesus Christ that was born on the day of Pentecost. Now is only maybe two months old. We don't quite know. So it's very young. It's almost brand new. And within just a few weeks of time and maybe just a couple of months, the gospel of Jesus Christ that was commissioned to the 12 apostles and some of their close friends and associates, now 120 people, those 120 faithful Christians through the power of the spirit of god we were able to preach the gospel of jesus christ throughout the entire city of jerusalem and infiltrate every corner of the street uh nook and cranny in jerusalem and even beyond jerusalem within 2 months or less and that was driven by the, the apostles who were daily preaching the word of god publicly all day long and there was a great reception to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was primarily just among Jews at that time in Jerusalem. And then shortly into it, there was resistance from the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees primarily, and the Pharisees. They tried to shut down the apostles, took them to court, threw them in jail, beat them, gave them a gag order, threatened them, but that didn't stop them. They continued to preach, make disciples, and then they took a very influential Christian in the early church, Stephen, arrested him, dragged him into court, falsely accused him, and murdered him on the spot through stoning illegitimately solely because he spoke of Jesus Christ and the good news. And that was spearheaded by a Jewish unbeliever with great zeal, a young man said the scriptures in the book of Acts, and his name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He spearheaded this new invigorated opposition to Christianity in the early church. He was probably responsible for the death of Stephen and spearheading that. Saul was a Pharisee, highly respected, well educated. He had zeal like no other. He was not a believer. He was a Jew. He was proficient in the Old Testament scriptures. He thought he did his dirty deeds to please God, which motivated him all the more, which is very dangerous. Misguided religion is very dangerous. And that was true of Saul. And then with that, a whole, after the death of Stephen, a wholesale persecution against Christians just exploded in the city of Jerusalem. So now every Christian was fair game to be arrested, dragged into court, beaten, and even put to death. And Saul of Tarsus is spearheading this movement, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 8. Because at the beginning of chapter 8, it said, with this persecution, it said that verse 2, or actually the end of verse 1, that all the believers in Jerusalem were scattered, scattered throughout. And that verb for scattered is used for seeds that are scattered. Scattered they were scattered and that's what persecuted christians are they're like seeds persecution we think is bad but persecution is like the wind wind can be annoying many times wind is uh, can't be controlled but wind can also be a good thing cuz one thing wind does is it it blows seeds and scatters them to other soil that they might take root and grow and produce fruit and that is exactly what this persecution did with these early Christians that were growing in Jerusalem, and the, the wind of persecution is blowing on these Christians. They scatter. Uh, they leave the city of Jerusalem. They're fleeing for their lives and from the persecution. They're going to surrounding areas, surrounding cities, 10 miles north up to Samaria and beyond. So God is spreading his Christians everywhere, fulfilling the Great Commission that the gospel would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, where now the gospel is spreading beyond the perimeters in the vicinity of Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, starting in the nearest town, which is, or area and region, is Samaria. So that's where we'll pick up uh, in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4 and 5, and we'll go up to verse 25. Two main characters in this passage are uh, a faithful believer named Philip, Philip was one of the first deacons that was selected by the apostles, but also by the congregation in Jerusalem. Uh, He was recognized as a quasi deacon because he was faithful, he was a servant, he was filled with the Spirit, he was truly born again, he was exemplary in his uh, walk as a Christian, and that's why he was identified. So this is Philip. He's not one of the. There was an apostle named Philip. This is not him, this is Philip the deacon, and then later on he's identified as Philip the evangelist. He is gifted at preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uh, has courage. He's bold. He can relate to people. He can articulate the gospel. This is what it means to be an evangelist. He's gifted in this. One of the spiritual gifts is evangelism. We're evangelists, according to Ephesians 4, and Philip had that gift. We're also going to learn that Philip had other spiritual gifts. Uh, one of the spiritual gifts is powers, dunamis, the ability to do miracles, Cast out demons, Philip was given that spiritual gift. First Corinthians clearly says that God is the one who sovereignly gives his gifts to his people as he sees fit. And God, in his sovereignty, gave these amazing spiritual gifts to Philip to spread the gospel. So that's just a little background about Philip because he's one of the main characters. Uh, Another main character in this story is a man named Simon. Simon, um, the magician, Simon Magus, we call him, historically, A nefarious character, really. Uh, The subtitle to the sermon could be the persecuted church, and then the subtitle could be the first false convert or the first false disciple of the church. Judas was a false disciple during the public ministry of Jesus. But Simon, as far as we know, is the first known or identified in Scripture false disciple or convert of the church, this is important to know. So uh, those are the two main characters. So let's go ahead and look at the story as it unfolds as a result of this persecution where God accomplishes his purposes. God uses persecution to accomplish good things. God takes uh, all bad things and works them together for good according to his plan. That's what he promised in his word. And before we delve into actually Acts 8, 5 through 25, I do want to read an important little passage from Matthew 13 because Jesus gave kind of a a prediction to the apostles that they needed to be aware of. Because he knew that the apostles would start the church. He told them that. I give you the keys, Peter, Matthew 16, at the end of his ministry. Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? That means Peter and the apostles had the authority to unlock the door to the church through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. uh, Ephesians says that that God laid the foundation of the church on the apostles. So they were key. And so Jesus is training them and preparing them. Boy, when I leave and I go back to heaven, it's not going to be all easy. Don't be cut off by surprise of some things that are going to happen. And Jesus tried to warn his apostles, there will be, Pseudo-conversions. There will be false disciples. That didn't stick in their brain the three years Jesus kept saying it over and over again. But they get it once the church begins. And here was one of those preparation prophecies for false conversions that will happen in the church. Uh, Matthew 13 Starting in verse 3, Jesus spoke many things to his disciples in parables or stories, uh, saying, Behold, behold. Now pay attention carefully. This is very, very important. That's what behold means. Uh, The sower went out to sow. Who's the sower? The sower is God. The sower is Jesus. Went out to sow what? Went out to plant the seeds of the gospel so that people might hear and be saved. Okay, so God is going to go out. He's going to sow. He's going to spread seeds of the gospel everywhere going to go on the ground. All kinds of different people are going to hear the gospel throughout history, verse four, and there's going to be four kinds of receptions to the gospel, and these four different kinds of people have something in common, and what they have in common is they all four initially accept the gospel. They say, "Oh, I believe that." They hear the gospel, "Oh, okay, that sounds good to me." Because there are different other receptions. There are people who hear the gospel and say, "No way, forget you, that's ridiculous." That's one another response is hmm, that's interesting uh I'm intrigued but uh, don't want to talk about it now maybe we can talk later But these four responses are four people who welcomed and they listen oh okay yeah I believe that and so here's but there's something deeper going on in the heart we see only on the outside we only hear words we are not God we don't know the human heart so God diagnoses the human heart on four real different kinds of responses to the truth that on the outside look positive from our point of view, we would say, oh, they got saved. Well, we don't really know that. And Jesus shows this that here. God goes out, sows the seed of the gospel. Uh, four different kinds of people respond positively to the gospel. Verse 4 says, and God, he sowed some seeds of the gospel, fell beside the road. The road is hard. That's where the seed went. And it didn't go into the ground. And so birds came by and they ate the seed up and took it away. That's bad. Second kind of person, verse 5. Well, other seed of the gospel fell on rocky places in Israel. There's limestone everywhere. And many times there's what looks like a patch of dirt and one inch underneath is just a whole bunch of limestone. And so there's hardly any dirt whatsoever. A seed can't really grow roots and grow there. And that's what verse 5 is. Other, other seed of the gospel fell on rocky places where it was stony, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they, the plant springs up but because they have no depth, no root, no soil, dies. Verse 6, when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away and died. So that's the second kind of person that hears the gospel. Verse 7, other seeds of the gospel fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked out the seeds. That's what weeds do, they kill. Then there was a fourth kind of a person who re- embraces the gospel or is positive to it, and that's verse 8. Other seeds of the gospel fell on good soil. That's and the soils, by the way, are, the, are people's hearts in this story. So whoever you're preaching to, they have a heart condition. They have receptive hearts to the gospel, or they have deficiencies because of sin and these other impediments. And others fell on good soil, yielded a crop, and some a 100, some 60, and 30 fold. That's the fourth kind of a person. So then Jesus explains, well, what's going on here with these four people who apparently received the gospel, believed the gospel, because in our our story in Acts 8, Simon Magus hears the gospel from Philip, and the scripture says, and Simon believed what Philip was saying. Believed. That's what it says. Oh, cool. He's born again. He's saved. And then in the story we find out, well, no, he's not. There is initial profession and acceptance of what he was hearing, but it wasn't sufficient. So this is really important. Here's Jesus' explanation of those four soils and the heart condition. Uh, Matthew 13 going down, uh, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the gospel, and does not truly understand it, see, that's key. When they truly don't understand it, they don't understand all the implications, the nuances, the depths of what it means. There's something there they don't fully understand. And as a result, they can't be regenerate and born again. There's a superficial acceptance of what's being preached in the gospel. This is most commonly seen or many times in churches with Christians who raise children in the faith. That's a good thing. We're supposed to raise our children in the faith, share the gospel with them, evangelize them. But when a child is sometimes two, three, four, five, six, seven years old, many of those young children who hear the gospel, they don't understand it. And that's the phrase here. They don't understand it. They don't understand all the implications. But they believe mommy and daddy. They believe what they're hearing. They're surrounded by all Christians. Oh, yeah, I believe this worldview. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Jesus is Lord. I used to be a children's pastor for years. And I could go into a classroom of 25 kindergartners. Give me, 20, give me 15, 20 minutes. And I could wax eloquent and be impassioned. And relate to the five, uh, five year old kindergartners, and I can tell them about heaven and hell and the reality of the devil. And how God is a loving God and their creator and the Savior. And that God can save you of your sin and he can rescue you. And if you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven forever and you will be saved from hell. And when you die, you won't go to hell. You'll be in heaven forever. And if you become a Christian, God will protect you from the devil and he'll never be able to hurt you. And I could go on. And when I'm done, after 20 minutes, I could give an altar call and say, Which one of you 25 kids would like to receive Jesus, believe in him, and be saved from the devil and never go to hell and go to heaven? And all 25 would raise their hand. And I guarantee that probably not all 25 were truly regenerate and born again and fully understood everything about the implications of the gospel just by virtue of where they are in life. But only God knows the heart. So going back to Matthew 13, uh, verse 19, uh, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom or the gospel and does not understand it, the evil one that is Satan comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So it's ignorance on the part of the person listening but also the work of the devil who is deceptive this is the one whom uh seed was sown beside the road verse 20 the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places this is the man who hears the the gospel and immediately receives it with joy oh i believe yet verse 21 he has no firm root in himself but is only it's only temporary his profession of faith it's only temporary so we see people come to christ walk the aisle walk whatever Oh, I received Jesus, and then two years later, they're living like the world. They've abandoned the faith, and they say they're an atheist. How did that happen? I thought you received Christ two years ago. It was only temporary, and here's Jesus' diagnosis of what's really going on. There was no transformation of the heart on the inside. What happened? Well, when affliction and persecution arose because of the word or the faith, immediately that person fell away. They didn't truly believe it was superficial. Verse 22, Verse 22, And the one, this is the third person, on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, the gospel, and the worry of the world. That's the concerns of the world. Uh, They're not in a fret all the time. The worries of the world, the concerns of the world, the priorities of the world, the goals of the world, the aspirations of the world, driven usually by money and materialism. And that's why the next phrase says the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. That is key. The deceitfulness of wealth, and we're going to see that with Simon Magus. He heard the gospel. Oh, he saw Philip doing miracles. Oh, Philip must be a magician too. Crowds followed and flocked on Philip. Simon saw that, and then it says, Simon believed. But Simon had a problem with wealth. And as a result, he falls into this third category, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word. It never takes root. He was never saved. It becomes unfruitful. And then there's the fourth person. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil. They had a receptive heart. God had prepared their heart with the Holy Spirit over time and the truth of his word. And they come to a point in their life where they hear the gospel. They understand completely through the grace of God. They believe in the gospel and they are truly regenerate, born again, forever, forever. They are transformed. They receive eternal life. This is the man or the woman or the child who hears the word and understands it. Understands it fully and completely for what the gospel really means. And you know a true believer over time by virtue of the fruit that is produced in their life. Works don't save you, but works do establish that you have been saved, transformed. So with that, let's go to now Acts chapter 8 so we can better assess and understand this strange character named Simon. So picking up at verse 5, uh, we'll go through the last three points here on persecution. The celebration is point number two. Let's go there. Celebration. There's a celebration. In the midst of persecution, there's a celebration of, of great joy. Great joy. We see that in this passage. Verse 8 says, there was much rejoicing in that city. So there's this whole-scale persecution, even to the point of death. In the Christian church, nevertheless, among Christians, there is great joy. And that's that's the amazing reality about Christianity. You can be in the midst of the worst persecution, tragedy in life, and somehow by a miracle of God, the grace of God, and only by God can he give a Christian, a true believer, supernatural peace that is beyond the explanation of human comprehension. That is a a blessed gift from God. As a matter of fact, I heard a, a pastor say, and I think I agree with this, that one of the first realities And expressions of regeneration when you first get saved is joy. And when I heard that, I thought, you know what? I've been saved since age 19-ish. It was a dramatic salvation. And when I think back to when I got saved, all I can remember is just having joy. Just a joy like I'd never had before since then. I want that joy again. I'd I'd love to recover that joy of, of newfound faith. So that's true. And that's what these new... Believers in Samaria were experiencing after they got saved. So that's why I called it the celebration. Well, what brought on this celebration among the Christians who were being persecuted? Well, Philip brings the gospel good news to Samaria. So let's go ahead and look at it, 5 through 9. So Christians getting chased out of town, that includes Philip. So he flees 10 miles away going north. Went down because Jerusalem was higher elevation than Samaria. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Samaria and began proclaiming Christ. This is amazing because I mentioned this two weeks ago. The Jews lived in Jerusalem and in Samaria, that region, the Samaritans lived. Who were Samaritans? They were half breeds. They were half Jewish. There were also some Gentiles there. The Jews thought the Samaritans were dirty. They were polluted. The Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. This was prejudice. This was racial prejudice. This was religious prejudice, and that your Orthodox Jews had an utter disdain for Samaritan people. They didn't view the Samaritans as human beings made in the image of God. Like the Bible says, regardless of your color, where you're from, where you're at socially, regardless of your religion, every human being has been created in the image of God and has inherent value as a result before God the Creator. So the Christian attitude towards another human being should want just be of, of love and compassion and having a desire for that person to come to know Jesus Christ and be forgiven. The Christian faith allows for no prejudice or partiality whatsoever. Do we have partiality and prejudice today in our world? Uh. Have you been reading the news? We have racial prejudice dividing the country, which, by the way, has been going on since this country started. We have social prejudice. We have ideological prejudice. We have all kinds of prejudice, not just in our country, but in the history of the world as a result of sin. And there is no fix. There is no cure because it issues out of a sinful human heart. That is the the source. The only solution to overcoming prejudice is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ who died, who is the Savior of the world and died for all people regardless of their color and ethnicity. And that's why in Revelation around the throne of God, as there's a picture of eternal heaven, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and who is surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect harmony and unity and worship. It is people who are saved from all tribes, all people, all nations, all tongues, all colors. It's amazing. It's the only unifier, the only thing that lasts, the only thing of reality. It's the only solution. It's the only answer. So the Jews had this utter disdain for the Samaritans. Uh, you wouldn't set foot in Samaria. And yet Philip, uh, a Jew, practicing Jew, goes and steps foot in Samaria. That's awesome. This is the love of Christ that compelled him to do that. He has put his pre- probably he grew up prejudiced against the Samaritans. He gets saved after hearing the gospel, and now Philip's heart is filled with the love of God. That's what Romans five says. You, Christian, since you got saved, your love, your heart has been filled with the love of God. And that's our motivation. That allows us to see people for who they are. Made in the image of God. They need to be rescued by the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is what compels Philip. He goes into Samaria. He doesn't care what his Jewish friends think. He doesn't even think, he doesn't even care what the Samaritans think. The fact that he's a Jew. They think he's dirty. Yet he goes in with a message of love. The good news. And he, what is he doing the end of verse 5? He is proclaiming Christ. He's preaching the gospel. It's not religion. It's not rules. It's not morality. It is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save sinners. It's the message he preached. It was good news. You can't save yourself. Only God can save you. And so he went into detail, no doubt, with this gospel. He was an evangelist, so he was thorough, he was clear, he was persistent, he was courageous, he was spirit-filled, he was prayerful, and he hit a nerve with the people as they heard this glorious news that they could be rescued. Verse 6, here's the response, the crowds, the crowds, the multitudes, people just came flooding to hear this message. So the crowds, with one accord, they were unified. With one accord, they were giving attention to what was said by Philip. They're listening. Wow. They were mesmerized. This is, this is awesome. This is intriguing. This is different. This man is sincere. And as they heard, and then they saw the signs of the miracles which Philip was performing, God gave him that spiritual gift to validate his ministry, that this was true, that he truly was a prophet of God. And they saw that. The Samaritans knew that. The Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible, like Moses, who did miracles to validate that he was a prophet. They understood that. This man was sent from God. This Philip is legitimate. His message is true. As a result, verse 7, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were demon-possessed. So there are many people in Samaria who were demon-possessed. And when they heard the gospel, the demons were leaving them, shouting, screeching with a loud voice. Upon the salvation and regeneration of belief, that's the quickest way to do a demon possession is somebody repents and gets saved. Boom. That demon inside is no longer welcome. Gone. A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. A Christian is possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. So these demons are shrieking. They are afraid. They leave. No vacancy. This place is occupied by Almighty God himself. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Real, genuine miracles by the hand of Philip through the power of Almighty God. So there was much, and as a, so crowds, and as a result, there was much rejoicing in that city. That means many got saved. True salvation, and there's great rejoicing in celebration, giving glory to God. And that is a theme by Luke the writer. In the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, that many times when there is initial salvation, the quickest thing that results is just amazing, uninhibited joy and celebration. I think of uh Luke 15 with the lost son, the prodigal son. Actually, the whole chapter are illustrations of one who was lost and then got saved. And the repeated, repeated refrain is, upon finding and salvation is the one in heaven is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. That's not the angels rejoicing. That is God the Father rejoicing over salvation. The day that you got saved, if you were saved, the, the greatest, the person rejoicing the most was God Almighty in heaven. And that's what they're doing here. This is this is awesome—a celebration of the grace of God in their lives. Uh, One of these people that responded to the gospel, verse nine, uh, was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city. So he was Magus Simon Magus Simon the magician. uh, The magician Magus was a loaded term in that day, two thousand years ago. Uh, It had to do with the occult. It had to do with false religion. It had to do with quasi science. Uh, They were so-called experts of the stars but they weren't just astronomers, they turned it into astrology because they de- tried to determine uh, mystical realities and religion from the stars, kind of like the zodiac today. So it was occultic, and that's what this guy did. That's who he was. He was an expert in his field. He practiced magic for a living in the city. Everybody knew him. He had a reputation. Uh, he was so good at it that he was astonishing the people. He was as- How was he astonishing the people? Well, by the amazing works that he was doing. Maybe through sleight of hand, maybe being just a genius as a magician, and also could be through the supernatural power of demons and Satan himself. Probably. And people were just in awe of him. They feared him. And then a competitor comes along named Philip who does real miracles, that top his miracles. Could be some of the miracles that Simon supposedly did weren't real miracles at all. They were sleight of hand and deception kind of like a lot of illusionists do today that are human. They don't do miracles. And here's here's Philip doing bona fide miracles. And you know what? Simon's kind of awestruck. He's like, wow, I didn't learn that one in magician school. How did he do that? I know that guy, my neighbor, He he only had one leg, and now he's got two. So that's... Simon, but so he's intrigued by Philip. As you read the story, he's not so much intrigued by the amazing message of repent and believe in the gospel as by Philip's ability to do miracles. But he used to astonish the people. And by the way, it says uh, he was astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. They didn't say he was great. He claimed himself that he was great. I am the great one. And because Magus or a magician Many times was a religious... Per- this is a religious person doing miracles in the name of religion, deifying himself. Who knows what gods he worshipped? But he definitely deified himself. And he's doing it for money. So there's nothing new. in that. We have people today going around doing religion. We have people supposedly teaching from the Bible, preaching about Jesus for money. And they claim to do great miracles. When they're masquerading, really. So... This has been around for at least 2,000 years plus. So we transition now from the celebration to now imitation. Imitation faith, pseudo-faith, false Christianity. Very deceptive, very hard to discern. Many times we aren't able to discern at all. We're duped. That's 9 through 19. Let's look at it, this imitation Christianity. Starting with Simon, who we introduced, claiming to be someone great. Verse 10, and they all, all the Samaritans from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him. So this had been a pattern. He was the most famous guy in town. Uh, He was a miracle worker. He was a magician. He could tell your fortune. He was like a palm reader. He was like the Zodiac guy and all those other things that we even have today that still go on, come out of the occult and false religion, deceiving people, leading them astray, asking for their money, giving them false hopes. It's from the smallest to the greatest. They were giving attention to him. Here's what they were saying. This man is what is called... The great power of God. He is like God. He is like a God. Well, he was calling himself God and they bought into it. Verse 11, and they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. There it is. Through who knows what means he was using, but he was successful at doing it. Verse 12, but when they, but at the same time there's Philip preaching the gospel. This message that they weren't familiar with, hadn't heard in such detail. It was amazing. And so there's Philip preaching while they're Simon continues to try to do his work, and they believed. They believed Philip. They believed, it says in verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So people were hearing. They were convicted. They repented. They believed that Jesus died for their sin, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's the only way to heaven. So they embraced Jesus as the Savior, and upon a profession of faith, Philip made sure that they were baptized on the spot in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, if you become a Christian, believe in the gospel, you must be baptized, dunked in water, which is a picture, a living metaphor of an inner reality that you have been hidden in Christ, buried in Christ, and you rise again in Christ, or you've been washed by the blood of Christ, the same way the water symbolizes Washing, that's what, and it was a public testimony. You're letting people know, I identify with the Lord Jesus Christ through obedience to baptism. And so people were flooding to get baptized. And so uh, Simon is intrigued, and at the same time, he's losing all of his attention and all of his customers to Philip and the gospel. And get this, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. See, just on the surface, we might think, oh, okay, Simon became a Christian. Well, he didn't become a Christian. We know that as we'll keep reading. He didn't, but he believed. So you mean you can believe and not become a Christian? Yeah. Happened all the time. Uh, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, in the midst of Jesus' public ministry, he's teaching in Jerusalem, in the temple, in public, around a feast time, declaring himself the bread from heaven. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes begin to assault him verbally, out loud, in public basically calling him a false teacher. And Jesus comes right back. And says, no, I'm not a false teacher. I'm, I am the bread from heaven. As a matter of fact, you must eat my flesh in order to have forgiveness of sin and go to heaven. And it says that many of his disciples followed him no more when they heard that. So the disciples were, they believed in Jesus, his initial message on a superficial level, they, identified, they were his disciples. They followed him. They were loyal to him to a degree. They supported him. They identified with him as their rabbi. But when the teaching got deeper and he exposed really what he was about and that you needed to turn from your sin and only to him as the Savior and the Messiah, it says they didn't believe, no, I ain't going that deep. And it says they followed him no more. You go two chapters more in John chapter 8. And it says that many of his disciples who believed in him, some of his disciples who believed in him. Jesus is talking publicly again in front of the temple to a crowd and those who believed in him is the phrase. And then a few verses later, you know what he says to those who believed in him? When they began to mock him and question who he was? He says, you are of your father, the devil. You are from Satan. These are people It just said they believed in him. You are from Satan. He was a murderer and a thief from the beginning. He was a liar and so are you. That's what he said to his disciples. Not the apostles, but people called disciples and those who believed in him. So there's a superficial belief. So there is a, a pseudo belief, a false belief, a shallow belief, an inefficacious belief a belief that doesn't bring regeneration, a belief that is only a, a scent up here and not in the heart. And it does not produce salvation. And only God can diagnose true faith from false faith. And that's what the, the, the epistle of James is all about. There is a faith, there is a belief that is not superficial. It doesn't save. And that's why James says in his epistle that if it was just superficial belief, the demons believe in God. Satan believes in Jesus did you know that Satan believes in Jesus Satan believes that Jesus is the Savior of the world Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross Satan believes Jesus rose from the dead and Satan is inherently incorrigibly evil forever he cannot be saved. But these were just logical facts that demons understand and believe in even Satan. So it's more than that. It has to be a heart issue with full comprehension. And one of the things you have to believe in order to be saved is that you are wicked to the core. You are an evil sinner. We are born that way. We are condemned apart from the grace of God. We can't save ourselves. We need to repent from our sin, and that needs to issue from our belief. And that's what Simon didn't have, this recognition and belief of his condition. He couldn't get over the fact that he thought he was great, a god. And there are many people like that. They say, with a shallow, superficial belief. I believe, and they really don't. They don't understand. They don't understand how they stand before God as a condemned, wicked, evil sinner who can't change their own nature. Only God can do that. And that was the Pharisees' problem as well. So uh, going on and just trying to diagnose Simon's reality when it says that Simon believed, verse 13, and after (laughs) even after believing, he got baptized. Philip... Philip doesn't know that Simon is not saved. Philip is an amazing, discerning man of God, leader in the church. And he's only going by the information he has, and that is a profession from Simon. Philip preaches the gospel, and and then Simon says, well, I believe that. Oh, great. Then you need to be baptized. And then Simon says, oh, okay, I will. And then Philip, or whoever, baptizes him. Boom, he's in. He's a member of the church as far as... Philip knows. Philip is celebrating and believing that uh, Simon has joined the church. He believed. He got baptized. And get this, uh, verse 13, it says, and he continued on with Philip. He latched on to Philip. All external signs that maybe this guy is truly a Christian. But he's not. This is uh, something that pastors and other Christians need to be aware of. That, Pastor Cliff, have you ever baptized somebody who later on abandoned the faith and they weren't Christian? Yeah, I actually have. that leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And you look back and think, boy, maybe maybe I missed something. Maybe I wasn't discerning enough. Maybe I failed to diagnose something. And many times that's not the case. Uh, You didn't know. All I knew, there was a profession of faith. They articulated the gospel. They said they wanted to be obedient to Jesus and get baptized. And like Philip, I baptized them. And it wasn't until over time where God revealed the heart. Sometimes we just can't know that. And the same with Jesus. Jesus selected 12 apostles. Jesus is the God-man. At times, Jesus was given omniscience in his human form by the Father if it was God's will at that time. And there were times where Jesus knew the hearts of people. Not all the time, only if it was God's will at that time. And here, Jesus chose 12 apostles, and yet one of them was a devil from the beginning, and that was Judas, and Judas was never saved. But Jesus warned the apostles... Uh, there's going to be false seeds sown. There's going to be goat goats among the sheep. There are going to be weeds among the tare. And you know what? When they're younger, it, it's hard to tell the difference. I lived on an animal farm for three years in Texas. Our family did. And we had goats and we had sheep. Sheep uh, are kind and nice and dumb and follow you and you need to care for them. And the goats are demon-possessed. I That's what it says in Matthew 25. But anyway, and but when... We, the goats and the sheep, they, the mommies would give birth on the farm and we go out and and the goats, the goats are actually kind of cute when they're first born. A week old goat is very cute and a week old sheep is very cute. And what I realized is they are, you can't tell the difference between a goat and a sheep when they're one week old. They look the same. And Jesus said, that's how it is in the church. And don't try to pull out the weeds. You're not God. Don't do that. Leave that to the harvest. God the Father, He'll take care of that. So here's Simon, he believed, he's with Philip, uh, he observed the signs, you get this, and as he observed the signs, he he just can't get over these miracles that uh, Philip is doing, miracles taking place, he was, he was amazed, man this is awesome! You know what? I am now Philip's right hand man. I am the opening act. Verse 14, and when the apostles in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, this was awesome. Wow, the gospel has now gone uh, beyond Jewish people to now those dirty Samaritans. Wow, they've actually welcomed Philip. They've actually welcomed the gospel, believed in God, saved. This is incredible. This is shocking to the 12 apostles. Peter still has a hang-up with non-pure Jews all the way up until Acts 10. So this was probably difficult for Peter. Wow, okay, yikes. And the apostles sent John and Peter up to Samaria to verify this was true and to give affirmation from the apostles who had the keys to the gospel to preserve the unity of the church by the laying on of hands of the apostles. The foundation of the church laid on the foundation of the apostles. So now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John Group decision after prayer, commissioning these two to validate truth according to the testimony of two or three witnesses in keeping with the Old Testament. Verse 15, Peter and John came down to Samaria and they prayed for them. So they met the Samaritans, they were celebrating, and then they began to pray for them uh, as apostles. Began to pray for these new saints, pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So when uh, these Samaritans first heard the gospel and got saved, they did not receive the Holy Spirit yet until the apostles came down and prayed for them. As Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, the laying of the foundation of the church, they were already saved. They had yet to receive the Holy Spirit the way Jewish believers did for the first time on the day of Pentecost. So it was delayed. Today when we believe, the moment you believe, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, says First Corinthians twelve thirteen, as well as Romans 8, 9. But this was transitional. This was different. Uh, came down, they prayed. God answers their prayer, verse 16, for uh, he had not yet fallen on any of... The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on these new Samaritan believers. Uh, they had simply been baptized after believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands. John and Peter began laying their hands on these Samaritan believers, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So they were actually reenacting the day of Pentecost, thus preserving the unity in the church. This is not just... The church is not to be just Jewish believers, it also includes Samaritan believers, and that unity is preserved by the leadership of the apostles. This is very, and you know what? The apostles are going to do the same thing at the, the first conversion of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius and Gentiles get saved, and the same thing. It, it has apostolic affirmation, the laying on of hands, the praying, and then the, the Holy Spirit is poured out again so that the day of Pentecost is reenacted for the third time, thus preserving the unity of not just a Jewish church, not just a Jewish Samaritan church, but the church includes Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles as one new man, fulfilling Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. It's amazing. So that's what's going on here. And then verse 18. Now, when, So Simon is watching John and Peter praying. And then now, in addition to the miracles from Philip, he's seeing the Holy Spirit come down in new and amazing ways and probably people speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff going. And Simon's just like, whoa, more miracles. This is amazing. I can't do that. And now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, then Simon does this. He offered them money. Hey, Peter, man, I'll give you cash for that gift. That would go great in my next show. Wow. Trying to pay cash to replicate the sovereign work of God. Verse 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So this is the imitation. This is a pseudo-Christian. This is a false believer. This guy is, uh, no doubt, has Satan in his life. Satan is very powerful. Would have fooled most Christians. It fooled Philip for a moment. But now we go to the confrontation. Uh, Peter is not fooled. Peter has a spiritual gift called discernment, probably. The discerning of spirits mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because he was an apostle. He probably had almost all the spiritual gifts. He had the gift of miracles. He had the gift of prophecy. He had the gift uh, of discerning of spirits in a supernatural realm that we, who don't have that gift, cannot see. Philip didn't see it. Peter does. And so when Peter hears Simon trying to buy the work of God through cash, and Peter's like, oh, he's not just, oh, that's how ignorant, how silly. His reaction is is amazing it's strong, it is visceral it's authoritative it's powerful it's almost frightening actually. Some people are sensibilities are offended when they read peter's response here It's confrontation that's how peter responds verse twenty but Peter said to Simon, "May your silver perish with you. Wow, that is not how to make friends and win or influence people. boy, that wasn't very nice. Wait, where does it say in the Bible that if you're a preacher, pastor, apostle, be nice? It doesn't. I think it's 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. before Almighty God, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove and rebuke are not be nice terms. They are strong. They are cutting. They are confrontational. It doesn't matter what the volume is either. When We know when Jesus and John 8 was talking to those Jews and he said, you are of the father, your devil. I mean, he could have said, he could have screamed it. You are of your father, the devil. Or he could have said, you are of your father, the devil. You know, it doesn't matter what his tone was. It was the content that absolutely infuriated them, insulted them and prompted them to pick up stones to kill him on the spot. The tone of his voice the volume of his what had nothing to do with it. This is hard for some people. Um, times for all. I mean, you go back to Acts chapter 7. Listen to what Stephen said to the Jewish leadership in verse 51. You men, you're supposed to respect authority. Here's what Stephen said. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's not nice, but that is true. Matthew 23, Jesus publicly again to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, seven times, you hypocrites. Woe unto you, hypocrites. Snakes, sons of the devil, whitewashed tombs. That, that wasn't nice. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah was a man of God, a prophet of God, led by God, spoke in the power of God, and then when he saw all these compromising Jewish men who were intermingling and marrying women, they shouldn't be marrying idol worshipers. It says that and Nehemiah is giving his first-hand account in Nehemiah 13, and he said, I began to rebuke them and curse them and publicly uh, exhort them, and I began pulling on their beards. I've, I've never done that. Uh, I am not a prophet. But that's what Nehemiah did as they were violating the Word of God. So this is like, whoa! This is a unique ministry, this, this prophetic confrontation that many times is reserved for just men like Peter. As they are led by God, there are times where Peter could do things in the flesh and sinfully, but here he is actually moved by the Holy Spirit to confront Simon because it is warranted. It is a public sin warrants, a severe public rebuke. And God is going to make sure that Simon becomes an example for the early church. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This became known as simony, buying the favors of God with money. We still have it today. Verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He's not a Christian. Therefore, repent of this wickedness. You are wicked to the core. These are strong words from Peter. Therefore, repent of the wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. I need to say, by the way, this is not how you witness to unbelievers cold turkey, by the way. You don't just go up and start doing what Peter did. The book of James says uh, teachers have a higher standard of judgment. The Sadducees and the Pharisees got the most resounding buke from Jesus, calling them snakes and serpents and everything else. Because they were teachers. They they knew better. They're not sinning in ignorance. If you're going to be a teacher of the Bible, there is a stricter judgment incurred for you. So the Pharisees weren't cold turkey unbelievers. Um, Simon is not a cold turkey unbeliever. He's heard the gospel. He embraced it. He believed that he got baptized. He joins the leadership team with Philip. And if he is wicked to the core and wrong, then he needs a sounding rebuke that warrants that at the level that he's at. He's not a cold turkey unbeliever uh, hearing this. There's a stricter judgment for Philip. When we go out in the streets and talk to people who've never heard the Bible before, never heard the gospel before, our approach is very different. Our approach is driven by 1 Peter 3.15. And that is, be ready for an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that is in you. That's an unbeliever. And they find out, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're different. Oh, you have hope. Oh, you have joy. I want that. Tell me about it. And then Peter says, Do it with gentleness and reverence. So that's when you're gentle and reverent. It's a different kind of person you're dealing with. Not so with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Philip. Very different audience. So that's important to keep in mind to balance our evangelism. Um, Therefore, repent of your wickedness in your heart and pray that the Lord, if possible, the the attention of your heart may be forgiven you. Repent. So he told him to repent. Simon does not repent. There is no evidence of repentance here. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So he pulls some phrases out of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that represent unbelievers who are condemned. And that's what he says about Simon. Simon is not a believer. He is not born again. He is not regenerate. He did everything on the outside that made it look like it. So that's very dangerous, very deceptive. We have that in our churches today. We've had that in the church for 2,000 years. We have that in GBF. Inevitably, it will be in every church. Jesus said so. And so, does Simon respond and repent? Verse 24, but Simon answered and said to Peter, but, so that, ooh, that's not good. You need to repent from your wickedness and ask God's forgiveness. Plead with him, but, already it tells you, ooh, it doesn't sound like a good response. Simon answered and said, well, you pray. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves. It's kind of a sarcastic response, really. So that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So there is no evidence of repentance here. We don't see Simon uh, following the apostles as a new man, regenerate, repentant, broken. As a matter of fact, church history has different stories. They're not the Bible, they're not totally reliable. But uh, Justin Martyr, who only lived 100 years later, talks about how Simon became known in the history of the church as a Gnostic. He never repented, he never changed, which would be consistent with what we see here. He was warned. He was called to repentance. He knew the truth. He didn't respond the right way. This is sad. So it would be true of all of us, except for the grace of God. So that's the confrontation from Peter that was warranted at the right time. And has been a warning for all Christians for all church history to keep us sober minded, to avoid superficial faith when we can, in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in our own families, and in our churches when it can be identified by God's truth well with that uh, we have the privilege now to go to communion the Lord's table which is really appropriate because one of the messages, resounding messages here is that it is it's frightening you can be self-deceived and think you're a Christian when you're not I truly believe that Simon probably thought he was a believer yet he was self-deceived And and what Peter was doing was calling him to examine his heart. Examine the truth and examine your heart. And before we have communion, I want to take us to Matthew 7 because this is a sobering reminder that's good for us to look at every once in a while before we go to God in communion. By the way, if you're a Christian, you are invited to participate in communion today. If you know Jesus Christ, that's the invitation in the New Testament to all believers to participate in communion. It is an outward sign of the bread and the cup, remembering the time when Jesus, just before His death, was with His apostles and predicting His imminent death and the meaning of it. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to absorb the wrath of God on the cross for you, the sins that you deserve to be punished for. I'm going to absorb those for you so that you can be forgiven. That's what communion is, uh, through the cup and uh, the bread, a reminder of Jesus giving His life for us. So as the, the plate goes around, just grab one cup, and inside that cup it's got the bread and the juice. Hold on to that for just a moment, and then after we read our Scripture passage together and pray, we'll go ahead and take communion together. But I do want to read Matthew 7 uh, while the, the elements are going around. Um, look at Matthew, if you have your Bible, or you can just listen Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus said, beware, beware. And he's talking to disciples. He's talking to people who are listening to his message. Beware. Watch out. Beware of false prophets, false religious teachers. They, they'll always be around. You'll know them by their fruits. You don't, we don't know the heart. We can't see the heart. Their fruits are their teaching, their words, their actions. Over time as a pattern of living. That's how we can kind of see, oh, That's the fruit. It's tangible. It's identifiable. Beware. And then Jesus transitions from, you know, beware and watch out for false believers. And then he turns it on them. Now, and beware also of your own own self and your own heart. Make sure you're not a wolf trying to be a sheep. Make sure you're not a false disciple. Because we're all vulnerable to that. And so he says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, when, when does this happen? Well, verse 22 says, on that day, on that day, on that day. Th- this is the day of judgment. This is the day of reckoning. This is the day at the end of the age. It actually could be for some people when they die, it's when they face the Lord Jesus. That's the day of reckoning. Whether it's at the end of the age or when you die and meet, the first thing that happens is you meet the Lord Jesus before you're consigned to heaven or hell forever. That's the day. So he says, on that date, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's that superficial mouth profession that some people do and they're not even truly saved. Uh, But the one who does the will of my Father who is in it? What is the will of the father? The will of the father is to believe in Jesus, believe in the gospel. That's what he said in the gospel of John. That's the will of my father, to believe in Jesus for who he truly is and believe about yourself of what God has said about you, that you are sinful, evil, wicked to the core. That's the will. Believe that. Verse 22, and here's the warning. Many will say to me on that day, on the day of judgment, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name? See, these are people who even had apparently religious abilities and could do miracles. Like Simon Magus, Judas, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. These are false disciples. They were never saved in the first place. In verse 23, one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And from all indications, that's what Jesus has said or will say to Judas upon Judas's death. He was a devil from the beginning. He never got Saved. And the Lord Jesus had to say this to Judas I never knew you. I never loved you. You never loved me. You didn't believe the right thing. Your belief was superficial. You rejected me. And then I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man. Who is the wise man? The wise man is the one. Uh, who acknowledges that they are sinful and wicked and cannot be saved apart from the grace of God, and they acknowledge Jesus for who he is, and they believe the gospel with full understanding that he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended on high, and came to seek and save sinners. And so as we examine, I'm going to give you just a minute while uh, we have some uh, music for us. Just pray in your own heart. Have the Holy Spirit examine your heart and to help you, because we can't assess ourselves on our own. We need his help and confess your sin before God, and and just get clean before Him. And then when we do that, after about a minute, we'll go ahead and partake together. So let's go ahead and pray. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.